Welcome to the Republic of Football, another episode driven by your North Texas Honda dealers. It's their job to be helpful. I'm joined by guest co-host Ben Baby of the Dallas Morning News, who has not been on the show before. You've been on Feinbaum a few times, but uh, I assume your absence is because you were scared. That's my only explanation. <laughs> uh, that, that's, that's the best explanation. I was, I, I was scared. It's a, it's a terrifying prospect, uh, but we got a lot to talk about today. Well, we don't, but we kind of do. It's May still, but we'll figure something out. Now, we'll hit on newcomers uh, who are coming to the state a little bit later. Uh, ben covers, uh, you do mostly colleges, but a lot of A&M. So, A&M lost a, a big piece earlier this month. Uh, Coda Martin leaves the program, goes to Syracuse. I think everybody sort of understood family business. It is what it is. Uh, we'll get to the big stuff on AM later, but as somebody who spends a lot of time in College Station, how would you kind of describe what is the impact of that uh, on this team right now? You know, that's it's a really interesting question. And first off, thanks for having me on the podcast. It is a is a pleasure. It's a little more enjoyable than Fine Bomb. Um, so <laughs> I do love Paul and, and the guys over there. However, it's always good to be here. Uh, he has with, more hair than me, so props to him for that. Barely, though. Not not by a lot. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's interesting with the Coda Martin situation because he was a guy, you go back and look at 2016, they thought he was going to be a starting tackle. Um, you know, I think they started out preseason drills with him at starting tackle, and then he got moved um, and benched and, and you know, kind of shuffled around. And now, you know, in 20, 2017, he got the job back. Um, and, you know, the offensive line, it wasn't very good last year for A&M, let's be quite clear. Uh, but the second, on, you know, the second I heard that his dad, Kirk Martin, was going to Syracuse, I said, this is a no-brainer that he's going to go grad transfer out because you knew he had the hours. And, you know, you, his dad being an assistant at Syracuse, uh, his father-in-law Dino, is Dino Babers, a Syracuse head coach. Um, so just put two and two together, it made, it made a bunch of sense for him to go out. And, you know, it, the, the fact of the matter is, is that it wasn't really a clear-cut thing that he was going to keep his job uh, because he had barely held on to it the last couple of years. And so um, it made a ton of sense. I, I think it just only raises more questions, however, all that being said about AM's offensive line and how good it's going to be. I think Eric McCoy, uh, their center, is really good. I think if they had anybody else that could play center, he would have been moved to guard or tackle because he's that good. Unfortunately, they do not. Um, so I think the biggest thing that Jimbo uh, Fisher is going to have to figure out is what he has at offensive line and if he has enough pieces to protect whoever he puts at quarterback. Yeah, Jimbo hasn't said – I mean, it's hard to get a sense of how this depth chart's going to look, what it's going to sort of – who they know they can rely on. What sense – I mean, how, how – I would say the, the best way to describe their current situation be amorphous. I think there's a lot that's going to change in preseason camp. What – for you, what are the positions that you think uh, are going to be really intriguing? We'll get to the quarterbacks in a little bit, but what are the, the positions that you think uh, could really change a lot? come preseason camp I think the two big ones offensive line like we touched on A&M if you go back and look at why they kind of fell apart in 2016 and why um, you know they, they kind of struggled at times in 2017 a lot of that had to do with the offensive line you know they just couldn't whenever whenever Trevor Knight went down um, they couldn't defenses were like all right they can only run the ball so we're going to stack the box and make Jake Hubenak beat us with the pass which is something that they could not do um, and then you look, um, you know, even even when Trevor Knight was healthy, whenever they needed a yard, I, I you note that they always ran around, went around the edge. They couldn't go up the middle, and I didn't think that was a good sign. And last year, you saw the the numbers that Travion Williams and Keith Ford uh, didn't really put up. I thought they could have been better, and I think a lot of that had to do with the offensive line. And I mean, you look at the roulette they played on the right side of the line. Um, you know, I think that's something that honestly that's more important than the quarterback situation because if you can't get that squared away. Um, whoever's back there isn't going to have enough time to throw, and you're not going to be able to open up the run game. Um, so it kind of makes you a very one-dimensional offense. And when you don't know how good the quarterback is going to going to be, whether that is Nick Stark or Kellen Mond, I think that's a huge issue. And the other thing um, is is the defensive back, and specifically at cornerback. You know, because AM secondary did not hold up well at times last year. And the X factor uh, in my mind is Clifford Chapman. Uh, he was a guy who was thought to be AM's best cornerback. Uh, going into the 2017 season, turns out he was academically ineligible. I think that happened very late in the process, and that put two freshmen at the corners. And you know, you had Debbie on Renfro, and then you know Miles Jones play a little bit. I think you saw Deshaun Caper Smith, who's now a senior, and I think there's one other guy who obviously is unremarkable because I cannot remember who his na- what his name is. <laughs> You're asking um, a lot of your freshmen, right? Um, yeah, exactly. But then you have um, Chapman coming back, Donovan Wilson, who broke his leg. 
uh, first game of the year against UCLA. He'll be back at safety. Derek Tucker, who I think will be a let's see, he'll be a sophomore next year. I think he'll be a I think he'll turn pro after his junior year, and he'll be a very strong draft candidate. Uh, they think he's going to be one one of the better safeties that's came through A and M in a while. Um, so you know, I think it'll be very interesting to see what happens. But yeah, O line and the corners are the two big situations. Then and then I think wide receiver is one that you can look at because you don't really know who's going to be behind Jamon Osmond, who's going to be another guy who'll be really good. But yeah, those three positions aside from QB are really intriguing. Yeah, is there anyone that you feel like Canimer? I mean, I, you know, Jay Sternberger had a really nice spring, but I mean beyond Osmond or uh, uh, yeah, Osmond. Who is there? I mean, I just you look at that roster, and you know, I was out there in spring too, and watching some of those guys. Like, even Osmond, I think, is pretty average. And it's like, you know, he's a good player. Maybe he takes a big step, but like, they gotta, you know, they gotta find somebody who can catch the ball. Is there anybody that you think can really take a big step that they might be able to lean on? You know, that's that's a big question because you didn't really see a whole lot. And you know, Cameron Buckley, uh, kid who was at Cedar Hill. Um, you know, he had his moments at times, you know, had a lot of freshman moments. Roshad Paul, uh, you know, Mr. Mr. Football, um, you know, had a great career at Bremond. Um, I believe that's right, Bremond, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, you know, he is a is a receiver there. But, yeah, Osmond is the guy that they were – they had a ton of hype coming out of uh, IMG as a freshman. You know, he had some moments where you wondered, you know, his hands I think need to get a little bit better. Uh, but I think he'll end up being a really good player. But behind him, you don't really know. Is a guy like Clyde Chris going to step up? You know, Kendrick Rogers going to gonna fit that mold for you? You know, Jalen Preston, you know, there's a lot of – you know, I think I want to see him, A, on campus – um, because, you know, I think no one's really discussed this, but, you know, you heard from a lot of recruiting reporters, you know, is Preston going to qualify? Um, I don't know if that's been said publicly at all, and I don't know really where that stands because, you know, I'm not in that game. But I think that's a big question that needs to be answered. You know, I think so if Preston does indeed enroll, um, and the only reason I'm bringing that up is because we'd heard that for so long mm-hmm. from a lot of different people. Um, I think Preston could be a game changer. Uh, but, you know, I think it's going to be Osmond, and, and I think the guys who were freshmen last year have to step up and, and play a little bit better and give Starkle or Mon um, targets to, to throw to. Yeah, the qualifying game is always confusing because guys can, like, take summer classes and squeeze it in, so you never really know. It's always hard to keep track of. So on the quarterbacks – I think maybe I'm being presumptuous. You're closer to it than I am, but I just don't find it all that exciting. I think the idea that that Kellen is close to Starkle, I don't know. I don't know that I'd say it's nonsense, but I don't think I buy it. I think this is Starkle's job. Am I off base, or what do you get the sense of of where this quarterback situation? Where do you feel like it is now? And come Thanksgiving, where does that quarterback situation sit? You know, I would have said prior to the spring game that this was not even worth talking about. It was a waste of time. And then as Starkle started out well, I mean, we were joking about where Kellen Mond might transfer. Um, And then Mond, to his credit, played a lot better, um, you know, at at the back end of that scrimmage while Starkle really struggled. And I think that did just enough um, to make us think that maybe there's a chance. Um, you know, because Starkle had a really bad pick, you know, pick there where he didn't really see the defender at all, didn't read the defense well, which I think is going to be troubling for a guy like Jimbo Fisher, while Mond was able to rally and, and play well. Um, and, and the really the, the big question about all of this with the quarterbacks, it doesn't matter who we think is going to be the, the starting quarterback. It doesn't matter, you know, what Jimbo thinks. It really matters if Kellen Mond believes he has a legit chance of being a starting quarterback next year, because if he doesn't, and, you know, knowing knowing him, I mean, you, you got to go back and look at who Kellen Mond really is, a guy who, you know, blew up after his junior year of high school, decided to, or sophomore year really, going into his junior year, transferred to IMG, you know, A, you know, for the, the exposure benefit, but B, to be as prepared as he possibly could be to play immediately when he got to college. Um, so, you know, given the way that he went about his high school career, I can't imagine that a guy who did all of that would be okay with sitting for a second year. And when you go back and you look at the numbers, Kellen Mond didn't throw a meaningful pass the last four games of the year. Um, you know, his only comp- his only his only action at the end of the year was against New Mexico, and that was after Nick Starkle had already thrown for 416 yards and a half. So, you know, he had, Starkle had already put up a, 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 you know, a really great performance. Especially and, the season finale, the Wake Forest game. Yeah, oh, in the Wake Forest game, yeah. he was great. And it's funny, you know, the, set, the dead giveaway that A&M was really scared of losing Mond was whenever in the buildup to the game, um, Jeff Banks, who now is at Alabama, went out of his way to say that Kellen Mond is, was, was going to see reps which I thought was kind of surprising. And I think that was kind of a thing that we're going to appease Kellen. And, you know, and they gave him one snap 
and it was a handoff. <laughs> and I said, I, you know, at that point, I'd be kind of insulted, to be quite <laughs> honest. I'm like, you know, I don't really know. If, you know, you don't want a token, token snap. You know, say, all right, we played you in the bowl game. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt like that's what that was about. Um, you know, and I think Kellen would, you know, I think that's going to be the bigger question when you talk about what's going to happen at Thanksgiving is which one of those guys is going to be on campus still? They both have the same same exact amount of of eligibility left three years, um, you know. And and Starkle's already burned his red shirt, so I don't think he's going to be the likely candidate to transfer out. Um, however, Kellen still has a red shirt left, so if he transferred somewhere, he theoretically has three years left, um, you know. And so he'd have four left to play three, but he'd have to get out before essentially uh, the the preseason started. Um, and, you know, I think that's going to be the shoe that drops. And I think, you know, I've said all along, if Jimbo's able to keep Kellen and Nick both on the roster, I think that's a huge accomplishment. And I think Jimbo deserves a ton of credit for that. Um, is it going to be likely? I don't know. I think that's something that the Mons and, and the Starkles are going to have to answer. Um, because I think Kellen did make some progress. But I think he's, you know, when you look at his completion numbers, we mapped it out. Like his completions that were greater than 10 yards, you know, Starkle dwarfed him in that category. You know, completions that were over 25 yards, Starkle, once again, just a, just a bigger passing threat. Um, so I think Kellen's got a lot of work that he needs to do going into his sophomore year to contend. And, you know, I think if, I think his family's got to honestly sit down and look and say, okay, if it looks like we're going to be the backup here, you know, long term, do we stay at A&M? And I don't think anybody should fault Kellen for that because as you look across the board, um, just because you can't start at one place doesn't mean you can't start in another place. Starts right? pretty good. <laughs> yeah, you know, and so uh, we'll see what happens. But that's really the, that's the most intriguing thing about the quarterbacks. Are they both going to be on campus come fall? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, looking back at his predecessor, I don't know that you can handle the quarterback situation any worse. So, <laughs> correct, correct. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think A&M fans, regardless of whether or not he stays, even if he leaves, if he doesn't embarrass A&M on the way out the door, that's an improvement. So, uh, we'll see. Kelmont is interesting. I mean, I think you look at him, you know, you mentioned his, his progression in the spring. I mean, you look at him in the UCLA game when obviously he wasn't ready. That was just... That was hard to watch. And then you look at him later in the season, as Starkle's starting to get healthy. He was a functional SEC quarterback. Like, at that Arkansas game, he played really well. Uh, he, he was able to make some plays, obviously limited in some ways. Um, but that improvement, he, he's he's just an intriguing prospect, I think, to me. I think, you know, like, like you said, I think Starkle, clearly his ceiling is higher. But Mon's ability to improve, uh, I do find interesting. Um, so, on Jimbo, the big man. Uh, a lot's been made, obviously, of his arrival. But as somebody who was there for you know much of someone's run, compared to now, what are the biggest changes that you have seen in the program that you think are going to have an impact beyond ob- the obvious sort of stylistic changes of going to a pro style and, and defensively bringing in Mike Elko? What are the things that the way that he's operating his program that you've seen or heard that you think are going to have an impact? You know, the way that that Jimbo goes about running running the program, it looks how a, you know, we like well, I think the best way to preface this is like, you know, you know, I covered high schools for a little bit and it was very clear I was talking to a Big 12 assistant, you know, a month ago. He was like it's very clear when you step on a campus or when you watch a practice why one program is good and why one program is not good. Um, and and you look and and you saw that, you know, Jimbo came in immediately said we're going to hammer out all the details and it's very hands-on. Um, and, you know, he just frankly has a different strategy of how a program should be run. You know, Kevin, someone believes that you let your coordinators do your thing. You don't micromanage anybody um, and you let people do what they do well and just kind of oversee things and step in as needed. Jimbo is not that kind of guy. He still calls plays, um, is still very heavily involved, even in the quarterback room. Um, you know, and that's all stuff that I don't think Kevin, someone was necessarily doing. You know, and I think a lot of AM fans will make the quick jump saying, oh, look at the way Jimbo does this. He's already going to be so much better than Kevin. And I don't necessarily know if that's going to be true um, because you don't really know that until the season plays out. And, you know, we know why Kevin didn't do well. Frankly, it was that, you know, I think Kevin got way too high with the highs, way too low with the lows, wasn't even keeled. And I think that reflected on his team. And you saw that at times. I mean, you saw whenever you go out and you play Alabama really well and then you go and say, all right, you know, we're going to come out and, you know, we got a shot at beating Mississippi State. You get it handed to you by Mississippi State. I mean, that's why whenever they, you know, during that UCLA collapse, I looked down press row, whenever the second UCLA cut it to 14, I said it's over. 
And someone was like, huh? And I was like, no, A&M historically just collapses. And I think that's why. A&M, whenever they get knocked down, didn't really know how to get back up under Kevin Sumlin. I think that's going to be the thing that separates him. If like he fixes that about his personality, frankly, I think he becomes an elite coach. Um, you know, with Jimbo, I think, you know, I think emphasizing the details, having tougher practices, I think that will all pay off. Um, in, in moments where you are tested in the middle of the year, I think them having a little bit extra fire is going to help the team. But you know, frankly, I think it's it's way too early to say that this way this approach is going to be much better because you look at what's happening at Florida State. You know, I think it's easy to be myopic and look at A and M, but you look at Florida State. People love the way that Willie Taggart's come in and loosen things up, and they think that they're going to be better off because of it, which I think is really interesting. And you don't really know. Just because something is new doesn't mean it necessarily is going to be better. So I think only time will tell. Yeah, I mean, I think you see that not only in the the micro of that, like the UCLA game and, and those collapses, but obviously so much has been made about the you know A and M in November, all that stuff. But I mean, they just so many times. I mean, how many times does US or LSU have to run for like three hundred yards? And it just looks like this team that you know what if a couple years ago they show up in the top four in the very first you know CFP rankings. By the end of the season, you're like. This team is just broken. Like what? Like what has happened? Like that? You know they're letting LSU just you know tear them up for 300, 400 rushing yards. Like, what do you think is the biggest reason why you sort of saw those late season collapses, and why by the end of the year that team looked so tired? And 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 what do you think? Uh, you know Jimbo has done to sort of address that. You know, so I think this is a very this is a multifaceted answer here because I think there's a couple of things when you talk about 2016 and kind of how tired they looked. I think they ran too many snaps. If you go back and you look, even when they were a top five team, you know, when they were ranked fourth, you know, I remember asking John Chavis back when someone let us talk to coordinators uh, <laughs> whether he thought that the snap count was too high because you looked at it and they led the Power Five by a mile. And I said, do you think this is sustainable? And he was just like, essentially said, no, your body can only take so many hits. And then as the year progressed, you saw, like I've got a picture, uh, um, a screenshot of the first series against LSU and the hole that Darius, um, the Darius guys had, the backup, because Fournette was hurt, the hole that guys had, there was like not an A&M player within a 10-yard radius of him. Like, they were just done. They had nothing left in the tank. So I think that's something to do with why they collapsed at the end of the year. And Kevin Sumlin, to his credit, recognized that in 2017 and said, okay, we've got to figure out a way to keep our snap counts lower and to be more rested come November. You know, and he said, you know, that's why he played younger guys. That's why he did certain things, yada, yada, yada. Fair enough. They looked a little fresher at the end. They played LSU a lot better. Um, granted, they made Danny Etling look like a Heisman candidate, which nobody should do because Danny Etling is not good. Um, you know, and so, uh, but they did look a little bit better. Now, however, when we talk about why they collapse and and going back to that 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 feeling like once things go south, they didn't know how to correct it. I think that very much was a thing. You went and look, and they just couldn't, like they just didn't have an answer for why things fell apart. It was just mentally they were shot, and I think a lot of that does fall on someone and the fact that they ride so high when things are going well. And that when things go low, they sink so low. I don't think you can do that as a team. You've got to stay even keeled. I think any good coach at any level of any sport will tell you you've got to be an even keeled person. Otherwise, you know, your team is going to be worse off. You can't, your team can't sense that, you know. And I remember A&M defensive end um, Jared Johnson last year, someone was like, you know, what's going on and why is this the, the case? And this is towards the end where the senior said whatever they wanted to, knowing <laughs> none of it mattered, knowing their coach wasn't coming back, whatever. And he was like, you know, it's all about backpacks. He was like, guys, at one point in the year, will stop turning their backpacks in on time, stop doing certain things, knowing that it won't matter, that there's not going to be, you know, a punishment that comes down. And I think that's one of the criticisms that you could have of Kevin Sumlin, that he's too much of a player's coach, you know, that he doesn't drop the hand when's needed, you know, gives guys too many chances. You know, I think that, that there is something to be said for that, that, you know, and you go look at the careers of Kenny Hill and Kyle Allen and a lot of these quarterbacks and you go, maybe they saw what happened with Manziel and said, oh, you can operate this way. You know, Kenny said that straight up. I thought I could do this yeah. because I saw what happened at A&M. And then when I got to TCU, I was like, oh, no, you cannot, you know, and, and, you know, I think there's a lot of different things. And I think, you know, Kevin has the capability of being a great coach. You know, Kevin and I did not see eye to eye. 90% of the time, um, you know, but I will definitely be the first one to admit that I think he's a good coach. Um, now, I, and I think all the things that I talked about are what's keeping him from being a great coach um, because the fact that he was able to win eight games a year at A&M, seven, eight games, you know, I think was a big accomplishment. But, you know, I think a lot of the things that you're going to see, Jimbo's going to run a more pro-style offense, which you kind of have to in the SEC because you're going to get worn out in November. And I think that's going to help out. He's going to pay more attention to things that matter. He's going to, you know, he his big thing is, 
I need to know why we're doing something. And I think that's very important. So I think all of those things are going to pay dividends. However, what's funny is that I wonder if his his style of how he operates on the field in terms of his scheme and mechanics and everything, I wonder how long that will continue given the way that things are changing in the SEC. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think uh, I, I think Jimbo is smart enough to figure that out. I think he's experienced enough to fit what he does to his personnel and, and figure out as things change how he needs to evolve with it. But at the end of the day, like college football and winning is really hard. <laughs> Even the best coaches, uh, you know, have rough years. Like obviously we saw with Jimbo last year, you know, it seems like Saban is like one of the few guys who sort of is immune to it. Um, and part of that is, you know, just having a constant wealth of five-star talent. But what do you think makes w- what, when we get to bowl season, what is it going to take for A&M fans to be happy and feel like, all right, we got our guy. This is going to be special. I mean, when you talk about what's going to make A&M fans happy, that's a in year we, one. We, we could in go along just in, in just in a, on a general basis. I'm not <laughs> I'm not really sure. Um, you know, it's a in year one. I think A&M fans should be happy with an eight win season, eight and four in the regular season. The bowl, the bowl game. That's asking a lot. I'm yeah. just gonna tell you. <laughs> no, no. It, it, I think, I think it is, but I don't think you can. I don't think you. You have enough people coming back to where you should have a realistic shot of winning eight. And I think you should be able to say we made a guy, we made, we made a coaching change, paid him seventy five million up front. He should be able to get us over the over under. I think you know. With I think the over under right now is like seven and a half. Like they should. If you're paying a guy seven point five million dollars a year, he should be able to get you to eight. I don't think that's asking too much. I think nine nine wins is asking. I think that's way too. I think the jump is way too big on the that. The schedule end. is a big part. It's of that. it's a tough. You got when you throw Clemson and Alabama on the same schedule. I mean, you're all, you're asking for two losses. That's, they're pretty good teams. <laughs> yeah, they are, they're not too bad, you know. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think those are coaches that are above Jimbo's you know caliber. To be quite honest, right now, you know, I don't think that's really saying a whole lot. I think Dabo's eclipsed Jimbo. Um, and Saban, you know, is in a stratosphere of his own. Certainly. Um, so I think eight wins, and I think we need to start possibly throwing out the, the idea that bowl games matter um, at some point in terms of record because of how many things change. I mean, look at last year. You know, do you say that A and M went eight and five or seven and five because they were with the skeleton staff and they knew they were on the way out? John Chapel was like, "See, I'm going to Arkansas. That none of this matters." You know, like I don't know if that. You know, you see that really across the board the way that coaching changes occur now. Like now, guys want to get to their their new schools almost immediately, especially with the new um, early signing day. Get there, start recruiting. You can't afford to to, to coach your team team through the bowl game. You got to go out and recruit because if you end up whiffing and missing on guys, you're going to be paying. You're going to be suffering those consequences in years two and three of your of your tenure. It's not worth it. So I, you know, I think a and fans, you got to look at what's going to be good. What when you're evaluating what's a good year, you've got to look at the regular season. And I think eight and four isn't asking a whole lot because you know I think you look at the schedule. You know I think you lose the Clemson and Alabama. I think you, um, you probably lose to Mississippi State because I think they're going to be really good. Um, you know I think I think they're going to be re- really good under Moorhead in their first year. I think they should beat LSU this year. A and M should beat LSU this year for the first time. And South Carolina should give them the business because uh, Jake Bentley and, and that staff over there. I think they're they, they're going to be really good in the East. Yeah, I think so. I, I like to ask people this that, that are around A and M because to me it doesn't make sense. And you know this is sort of the age old question, but I've never people have theories. I mean I don't think there is a real answer to it, but you know. To win in college football, you gotta have money, you gotta have fan support, facilities are an issue, um, you gotta have talent. On paper, I mean, A and M, they're in Texas, they recruited well enough to win more than they have. Obviously, elite facilities, elite fan support, all the money that you need. What what is your reason for why we have seen them be just a traditional underachiever? Because people like to make jokes about it, and the Aggies get you know a hard time. But like legitimately, like they should win more than they do. So what is your personal theory for why they are the, the they why they have earned the status of the perennial underachiever? You know, I think that that's a really interesting question. In you know, if you go back and you look at have they how much have they underachieved by? I think that would also be. I think that's up for a good debate because you know they they someone likes to point out that he's been better than a lot of people have in their time at A and I, I think you look at his record; it was the best 
post World War II outside of RC Slocum, mm-hmm. winning percentage wise. So he actually was a very good coach by NM standards. But yeah, you look at it, you look they're the, they're the number two school in Texas. I, I'm sorry, AM, y'all are still <laughs> y'all are still number two in Texas. I mean, whenever and the finances will, will support that statement. Whenever all the Kyle Field money drops off, um, you know Texas will be out earning A and M by a mile, and a- Texas already has beaten A and M this year, even with the Kyle Field money on the books, which is remarkable because Texas isn't building anything right mm-hmm. now. Um, you know, and so I think that's that's a so you are one of the top schools in Texas. You got a fertile recruiting ground. You've got the money. Um, all these things happen, but I think people don't realize College Station is still a tough place to recruit to. It is not. You know, when you look at who you have, um, you know, I think Norman, you know, you could argue is a better college town. You, you know, 30 uh, minutes from OKC. Yeah, basically, you know, you know, basically in the city. Yeah, um, you know, Austin, you don't have to argue that, you know. And, and you know, and the SEC's got its allure in certain places. Um, you know, I, you know, I think that there's there's reasons why they don't recruit as well against their old Big 12 rivals and why they don't recruit as well against their SEC rivals. But, um, you know, I think that's kind of the, the thing. And I think that's that's honestly probably the biggest reason is that College Station is still a tough sell. You know, all things considered, it's not like recruits are going to go line up and say, I want to go to College Station. I mean, having spent time in College Station, realize there's not a whole lot to do out it's there. Very true. Um, you know, fits some, it fits the Jimbos of the world, but the five-star recruit from Dallas, uh, I can see. <laughs> I can see when you start looking at Austin or, or Norman or even like, you know, even going to Alabama or playing somewhere like that, like an Sean Robinson, I can see it. Right, right, right. And, you know, and we don't want to get into the, the business of how recruiting actually <laughs> operates. I don't think we have enough time for that on this podcast. However, um, you know, at the end of the day, no matter what influences may occur, I think Andy Staples references this a ton, no matter how much an influence uh, recruit may be influenced by outside factors, we know whatever they might be, the right fit, things of that nature, a kid still has to sit, decide he wants to go to school there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think that, um, you know, College Station, it is, you know, you're still an hour away from Houston. And, you know, you look at the SEC and, you know, those are real SEC towns and A&M is starting to kind of try to get to that way. Uh, you know, but, you know, like you go you go walk around a tailgate, you know, um, at certain places, at certain venues, and you go, wow, this is amazing. A&M, they've got their moments. But like their main tailgate so far away from the the field, and you know you've been to an A and M game, the the tailgates in front of Kyle Field aren't you know spectacular. It's not yeah. the Grove. It's not, it's not as cultural. Um, you know I think A and M. You know Andy said it best when you asked him about. It. He said A and M was a cultural fit in the SEC, but I still think there's a level that A and M still lacks in terms of culturally being full SEC because A and M honestly is a you know, you look at all their athletics, they're they're still kind of in the Big 12 model of being, you know, and I apologize to Greg Sankey and the SEC in advance, <laughs> but being a fairly well-rounded school. And, you know, in the SEC for a while, their basketball programs were trash. It was football, spring football, and nothing else was good. Baseball, fine. You know, but, you know, in the, in the, in the Big 12, you're starting to see, you know, the SEC's catching up. Their women's basketball's getting a lot better. Men's basketball's getting a lot better. You know, across the board, they're improving their sports. And I think Greg Sankey's has a lot to do with that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's still... They're still only been A&M's still only been in the SEC for a handful of years, and I think they're still going to struggle to recruit against your Alabamas, your Auburns, your LSU's. And honestly, if you can't recruit better than them in the SEC West, you're going to finish fourth. That's the hard nature of it. You could have the number five recruiting class in the country. However, if Auburn, LSU, and Alabama are ahead of you, you are still finishing fourth in your division, yeah. and you're still only winning seven or eight games. So it doesn't matter how well you do nationally. It only matters how well you do in the SEC West. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to, you know, A&M fans got mad at me when I wrote this when they left, but I always felt like, okay, like I kind of understand where you're going. It's certainly a risky proposition. I get it. I get the concept of your ceiling is much higher in the SEC, but it's just going to be harder to win stuff. It's just that simple. I mean, I think it goes down to as simple as they had a truly transcendent player for two seasons, and they didn't even get a division title out of the whole deal. They got a win over Bama, and they got a Heisman, which is something, but it's not the thing. I don't right. think that. I don't think that's you know that Heisman will last forever. That win over Alabama, honestly, best A and M moment. Maybe since they won the Big Twelve in '98, yeah. is there one I'm missing? No, that's I probably I it. Think that's it. That and then if anybody remembers the national title they won in 1939, <laughs> that's, that's it. Like I, so it's like so you have that. It's like I said, it's something. It's not nothing. No, but it, but to have a transcendent player, a truly once in a lifetime player in Johnny Football come through your program, and that's what you have to show for it. You know, that's just the, it's a it's an uncomfortable reality that A and M is in. And also, you're sitting in a, in a situation where, you know, we've we this is the the one of the great what ifs of of the last ten years. But 
if they're in the Big 12, A&M is certainly the best team at the end of that season. They probably don't have to start the season, and they're running the SEC playing Florida and LSU. Like, their first couple games and trying to just, like, figure out, like, okay, this is how we're going to – because their, their opener got canceled that year, right? Yeah, I think it, it was it like a storm. Like I think it was a hurricane. Something, yeah, something, something like happened, that. yeah. They had to play somebody, but they opened up with Florida. It was a great right. game. No one really knew what to expect. Someone's first game, Johnny's first game, and he was, like, good. But you kind of saw the potential he's making some plays. But anyway, you can go through the whole thing. I mean, I think, you know, at the end of that season, as much as people want to believe the A&M would have been in the national championship, they would have been on that level. But you're still talking about putting them in the national championship over an undefeated Notre Dame, an undefeated Alabama Okay, <laughs> that's asking a lot. But still, like, certainly they go to a major bowl game. They don't get stuck in the Cotton Bowl, which at the time was not a New Year's Six game. That was still the BCS era. So, you know, it has come to fruition. Like, A&M, they're probably in better shape, a better team than they were in the Big 12. As a university, probably in a better, a better spot. But the wins and the trophies and the things that you sort of dream about when you become a cultural player, they haven't been there. So... You know, it's sort of playing out kind of like I thought it would. But for you, obviously, Jimbo, a huge coup. How do the next? What do the next five years in College Station look like? Right now, got to put you on the spot. That's a good question. Um, <laughs> you know, I I think the big question is how does Jimbo adapt to the way college football is played today? I think him hiring Daryl Dickey was a huge huge deal because I think he wants to kind of because Dickey comes from Memphis under Mike Norvell who slung it around a ton. And I think Jimbo is smart enough to realize that we have to adapt because, I mean, Nick Saban had, had this conundrum. You know, Nick Saban, as pro-style as it got, Alabama, great offensive linemen, great running backs, garbage quarterbacks. That was an MO on them for years. And they won a lot of times with it. He, he did, but he started to realize, okay, I mean, he hired Lane Kiffin for a reason. You know, if he doesn't go get Lane Kiffin and if he doesn't open up his offense, guess what? They don't have Jalen Hurts. They don't have Tua. And they can't go in, and, and then you don't win. College football looks a lot different. It does. You don't given, yeah. You know, and honestly, I think you know, I'd be very curious to see how much of an impact that 2012 season had on Nick Saban, because he not only lost to Johnny Manziel and was ill prepared for what. A- I mean, the whole SEC was ill prepared for what yeah. A&M had. That used to be that used to be Bama's like Achilles heel was the mobile spread quarterback, like the Cam Newtons of the the world. But they've kind of figured that out now. They've right. done what I mean, they can, as long as you're not Deshaun Watson with like you know, but. He's the only guy who's been able to like light up. Bam. Right, right, and so and then you have, and then what happened at the end of that year? Granted, they weren't too thrilled about the bowl game they were in, um, and I think it might have been 2013. Trevor Knight ended up beating them in the bowl game. I want to say. Yeah, Bama. Yeah. Yeah, Bama. Mm-hmm. So you know, you go and you look at it. Um, you know, I think that had an effect on him. I think Saban kind of realized, okay, this is you know, guys, that, those kind of offenses can pose problems, but also you got to be to get to recruit those kind of players and to get those kind of playmakers. You've got to have that kind of system in place. And so, you know, I think that's going to be the interesting thing is what happens, you know, with Jimbo and how he how he adapts, how he kind of opens things up. I mean, he's got the knock of never going for it on fourth down, very conservative. Um, you wonder, you know, how he how he expands and grows. And, you know, if he's able to recruit well, you know, we saw Tom Herman had his, you know, bump and had a really great class. You know, I think the big question is going to be is how well does Jimbo recruit in 2020? Mm-hmm. Can he sustain a top five nationally recruiting class over a long period of time? Because at the end of the day, if you cannot, I don't think it's fair to expect him to get better results um, than, than A&M and, and things of that nature. So I think only time's going to tell. I don't know if he's going to be in better shape moving forward because A&M well you know like I've said A&M's already tried this once in the 80s when they went and hired Jackie Sherrill you know they said we're going to throw a bunch of money at a coach who's been really good and hope it works Jackie ended up sanctioned um I won't I won't throw the name of the paper under the bus who ended up uh, who might have played a role in that uh however you know I think and I think Jackie ended up you know I think that's the thing Jackie came to the realization winning here is a much more difficult than people realize and I think hope you know you would hope if you're an A&M fan that you know, you you gain a lot. You've gained a lot of cultural clout. You you've you've made A and M a place that's much cooler to be at, and a place that recruits want to come to. I think that's a big thing that Kevin Sumlin tried to do. You know, when you look at the the the, the social media efforts that they had, um, him you know playing rap at practice. You know, when you hear Migos and well, you know, there's a Migos when Stir Fry was on the radio. I didn't even I didn't hear it until I was at A and M practice. I was like, <laughs> what is this? You know, I got to the Charlotte. I'm like, oh, this track bangs. I heard it at A and M practice. You know, you know that kind of stuff. I think is you know, play some kind of factor at some point in time. Um, you know, so so we'll see. I, I think it's there's so much that so many variables that, that exist to to that you don't know if Jimbo is gonna pay off. Because let's be very clear, 
Jimbo has to win in at least an SEC championship at A&M. If he does not, it is a failure. It's true. If he the does not make the CFP high, yeah. once in the in the first five years, it hasn't been it hasn't paid dividends. Yeah. And the problem is, A and M is going to be on the hook if A and M doesn't get what it wants after five years on the hook for thirty five million dollars, which is more than the entirety of Kevin Sumlin's last contract at A and M. That's a lot of money. Are they going to be willing to foot the bill at that point? I mean, they're in this for better or for worse. Yeah. And you have to hope that if you're an A and M fan, you have to hope that Jimbo can adapt, can find a way to make it work that he isn't just pocketing $75 million and calling it a day. Um, and you would think, I think Jimbo loves football. I think he's very competitive. So I don't think you have to hope that he is using A&M like a retirement plan. Um, and so, which was maybe it might've been the fear with some previous A&M assistants. We won't name names. Um, <laughs> Jimbo's not Dwight Howard is what we're trying to say. Correct. Correct. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I think that's interesting. And going back to the point of, you know, whether A&M is better off having been in the SEC, um, you know, I think that they enjoy, they're no longer in Texas' shadow. You know, they no longer have to play the politics of having Texas in their own conference. They are their own thing, they are for their, better I, or worse. I think, and I think that's good. I think, and you look at what happened in 2016, yeah, you had a loss to Bama, but because the SEC is so much, you know, so far, let's be clear, so far ahead of the Big 12 in terms of perception in, in, uh, by the CFP committee, you can be a one-loss team out of the SEC and Almost still... sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you look at Al- Alabama didn't even win the in, win the West last year. They made the C. It's unheard of. You telling me the second best team in the Big Twelve and the Big Twelve champ are going to make make the the CFP? That is not happening. Never. Hell, you know, it's it's almost a hard ass to even get the Big Twelve winner now. With in one the, loss, you got to have everything break your exactly. break the right way in the Big in the 12. SEC. You don't have to worry about that. So I think that's one of the benefits. But I agree in the fact that there are a lot of what ifs had they stayed in the Big Twelve. But I think all in all, it's probably the best for everybody involved now if we can just get texas and a&m to play again be great i think a lot of us would enjoy it i don't know if that's going to happen anytime soon but it won't but we'll be all right no yeah. the uh you make an interesting point hitting on 2020 i do think that's huge because i almost think that like a top 10 class for 2019 almost feels like a given for jimbo because Correct. everything that he's selling is going to easily resonate with guys but then you start getting to two years of football you got to start showing something. You don't have to go to the playoff, but you got to start showing something. So, you know, if I'm looking at the next five years, if I'm looking at my crystal ball, I'm going to say for A&M, you know, I would say probably two double-digit win seasons. I think I, I think I can see that happening in the next five years. I don't think they win a title. I just don't I just don't see that. I think you're going to need, like, a Saban retirement. That would, that would change that. If you can get Saban retiring – that puts everyone on a very different footing, and I don't think we're going to see that for another five or six years. But I think you can win. I think you can go two double-digit win seasons if you're A&M. I think he can recruit well. I think he can say some of those structural things and having a, a more balanced program. I think he can get there. The playoff, we'll see. It's just tough in the West because it is. You know, you've got. To, first of all, even if you get by Bama, even if you get by Bama, Auburn's always going to be there. LSU, not this year or probably next year, right, but LSU right, right. is always going to be looming. And then you probably, once you get, obviously Georgia is the closest thing to being the new Bama. So even if you get to Atlanta, which is hard enough on its own, you're probably going to have to beat Georgia. Florida might become a factor in the next couple of years. You know, we'll see. It's it's not going to be easy. Uh, so I would probably bet against a playoff spot, but I think they can get to 10 wins twice. I think that whether well, I'll count the bowl games. Okay. I'll give them the bowl games. Okay. I think 10 wins twice. If I'm betting on A&M, I think that's what happens. I think zero losing seasons and two 10-win seasons. Oh, you better not have a losing years. season. Oh, Lord. No. If you have a losing season, even There is never out. a time where that's acceptable. No. And no. It, but, you know, hey – Charlie Strong got away with it, kind of. <laughs> well, a little, get, a he, little bit. He yeah. survived for a uh, while. Yeah, no. He, um, you know, the thing with yeah, A and M. I think if they win ten wins, I think it's it's a very good year. However, I think with the parameters of Jimbo's contract, I mean, A and M fans hate this argument. And I'm just like, listen, you go pay a guy top dollar money, you got to get top dollar results. And so results ten wins are, business, tens yeah. are tens are great. Ten wins are great, but you know, I think, you know, I think that's that's part of the problem with that with like. Fans are like, you know, we want to win regardless. Administrations aren't going to see it that way. They're not going to expect a guy who gets paid very poor salary to be able to compete with the best in the country. That ain't happening. You know, I think that's one of the things with Kevin Sumlin. He, he was making top 10 money, not having top 10 teams. That's an issue. If Kevin Sumlin was making top 25 money, you can't really fault him for not making the top 25. You see what I'm saying here. Um, you know, and, and with this whole Jimbo situation, I think 10 wins would be good, but I still think he's got to go win in the West, and he's got to go win, you know, make the CFP at least once. Here is the one thing that nobody has discussed until about, right now. Until right now, I guess. <laughs> I don't. I haven't heard it yet. 
I have a lot of questions about what happened at Florida State because you go back and you look at it, Florida State was built to be a contender year in, year out. They recruit better than everybody. They have they're essentially an SEC school in the in the ACC. Like they should be what Oklahoma is to the Big Twelve. Florida State should be to the ACC. And what we saw was a lot of programs not only caught up to Florida State, but they surpassed Florida State. And that has to be troubling because that should not happen. Yeah, how you let I think how you let Clemson. Yeah, like Cle- like Dabble deserves a lot of credit, but Florida State is the giant that sort of let that happen. And then obviously, you know, Louisville probably didn't surpass them, but they certainly beat them. So it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and you look at it and you know, if you're Jimbo Fisher, you say we didn't have the support that that, that Clemson got that other schools are getting, and I think that's viable. I think you could argue that at some point, um, and that's why they were getting lapped up. Fine, fair enough. Um, but you know, you're not gonna. I think that's something that he has to answer. And the fact is, was you know, we talk a lot about was Kevin someone's ear with Johnny Manziel, you know, an anomaly kind of. You know, was that was that just not what was what we should have expected all the way around? I think we should ask the same kind of for Jimbo a little bit. Was you know, can he can he replicate? their national title win without a quarterback like Jameis Winston. I think that's something both guys have to answer. They both have to answer, can they be the coaches everybody thought they are without a dynamic quarterback? And granted, that's a lot to ask because, I mean, you could be saying the same thing about Larry Fedora at North Carolina without Trubisky. Well, the simplest um, answer is just go get another Jameis. Right. Jameis was good, but I wouldn't call him a transcendent guy. He was very, very good. I think you can find another Jameis. You can't find another Johnny, but I think you can find another Jameis. Right. And we'll see. We'll see. You got to recruit him. Yeah, you do, out. and you you look at A and M staff. You know, Daryl Dickey, um, an ACC head coach, told me Dickey's going to recruit Houston like nobody's business. Like he's going to be really good at that. Uh, you look at Damian Craig, who helped recruit uh, Jameis at Forest State. Um, Tim Brewster, who is a notorious recruiter. Um, you know, Jimbo essentially just lined up his staff with a bunch of guys who would just go out and recruit. I think that's, and he, I think, and he recognized the fact that that's a necessity for him to win. You know, it really doesn't matter how good of an X's and O's coach they are. If they can't recruit, it's irrelevant. So, you know, if A&M can't recruit to top five, you know, better than Auburn and LSU and, you know, on par with Alabama at times, you know, they don't have a shot. Mm-hmm. We'll close out the show looking at a bunch of new guys in the state of Texas. An interesting year. We touched on Coda Martin earlier who left the state, but really – I don't know that I remember a year where there's this many like high-profile guys coming into the state of Texas. So we got to start with, I think, the guy who will end up having the biggest impact. Well, maybe. There's two guys. But I would start with Calvin Anderson at Texas. I think, one, it's telling that the first day that he says he's leaving Rice, he's a two-time All-Conference USA guy, everybody's calling him. Auburn, you know, everyone. Oklahoma, everyone. He ends up at Texas. I think the idea is not that he's going to make them better immediately. The idea is that he's the new Connor Williams, that he's maybe not going to be like, you know, a first, second round pick, but a guy that you're not going to see that much drop off. And Connor Williams missed a lot of time last year, the knee injury against USC, but still, like he can give them some stability uh, at left tackle. Really smart guy, obviously going to Rice. I had a chance to talk to him this spring, and he was just very uh, deliberate in his process. Uh, when you look at at him, what do you think? What do you think the impact that he can have on Texas immediately could be? Is it any deeper than just trying to make sure they don't see a drop off at left tackle where they probably would have? You know, I think it's that that's one of the most important positions in in the game. Um, you know, I think you, you're when you go look if you want to look at what positions are valued, go look at how teams draft when you only have a certain level of positions and what how, who goes. Quarterbacks ends tackles. Why? Because the game is essentially still all about the quarterback. Throw the ball, you get want... the quarterback, protect the quarterback. Exactly. That's <laughs> it. I mean, all of those are the top money making positions in the league. Um, you know, for that reason. And so I think it's huge. If you've got a if you've got a tackle who you can trust, who can who can negate a top end pass rusher, that's huge. Um, you know, I think you can make a mediocre, mediocre quarterback much better than he actually is if you give him a couple extra seconds. You can make a subpar running back and do a serviceable running back. You know, with Texas getting Trey Watson, that might be something that's huge uh, for them. You know, a lot of people, you look at Jimbo's, Jimbo when he got to A&M said, it's all about the guys up front. I firmly believe that. I think it's, it's if, you, if you don't have a good line on both sides of the ball, everything else is irrelevant. Um, and so getting, getting Calvin Anderson was huge. 
You know, and I think it, it is a little unfortunate, though, you know, you look at um, what's kind of happening to college football that, you know, the grad transfers essentially now, it, it, the, the free agent market, you know, it, it's a shame for some of the schools that don't have the money to compete with some of these other I big programs. I feel for the group of five coaches. I, I do too. And, you know, it's just the game has changed so much. And, you know, it, I think there's – we could talk about this for hours on end, um, you know, about how, you know, the, the game is going to change forever with the amount of money that comes into it and now with the grad transfer uh, policy. Um, but, you know, Texas is going to be the benefactor of this because they're going to get a, a running back in, in Trey Watson who could be a guy who, who can fill that void that Chris Warren left and he could be running behind holes created by Calvin Anderson who could be, you know, that, and that could be significant. We're just going to have to see how he translates uh, to the next level. Mm-hmm. The other, I guess I'd go 1A and 1B. I'm, I'm fascinated by this because Gary Patterson, I talked to him, I don't know, a couple weeks ago about Juanda. Uh, so – Coaches can talk about graduate transfers. It's not against the rule. When you sign uh, a financial aid agreement, it binds the school to the kid, but not the kid to the school. So you can't say, well, we don't have room for you anymore, but the kid can go elsewhere. So a lot of times coaches are a little bit skittish. We've seen a couple teams get burned, not a lot of high-profile cases. So Gary has really been slow in discussing Jawan Johnson, the Northern Illinois linebacker. He had 19 tackles for loss last year. One of the best defenders in the MAC. Uh, TCU loses uh, Traven Howard. They were out without him for a couple games last year. You saw the the loss there, and he's stopped short of sort of saying that Johnson can come in and, and be a plug and play guy. But I just think he he can be. <laughs> he's just a playmaker, and I think that's going to be a huge huge impact for them. You know, TCU has got to replace a little bit, but I think they're still going to be probably the second-best team in the Big 12 entering this season. They could win the league. What kind of impact do you foresee uh, Mr. Johnson having as he comes to the state of Texas? Yeah, you know, I think his skill set is honestly perfect for Gary's defense. When you look at because like, he, I think one year was listed as a defensive back, ended up finishing up as a linebacker. What he is is a nickel. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what he is, a rover that can play in the box if he needs to, can also uh, pass defend. And those guys are so valuable for a defense. It allows you to be do so many things if you have someone who can play uh, that hybrid position. And you look at the numbers he put up; they're insane. I mean, they're they're very good numbers. Um, and so, and you know, in that conference, the Mac's not bad. It's not a bad G five conference at all. Um, and so I think that he can be a, you know, plug and play guy, you know, and you look at, and he, you know, he's a guy, when you look at it right up Gary's wheelhouse, a kid out of East Texas, great athlete. And Gary finds a way to make those guys incredible. He, he makes those guys money in the league. Um, and so, you know, when you look at, um, I think it's a very natural fit. And when you talk about, it's funny, you talk about the financial aid agreements, man, if I am a five-star recruit, I never sign a letter of intent anywhere. I only sign an aid agreement. It's another because, podcast. Yeah, no, <laughs> it is. Hours, because, yeah. I mean, it's smart because yeah, you don't want to, why, why bind yourself unnecessarily? You know, it's, it's good that players are getting that position of power, but yeah, you know, it makes coaches skittish, but it's odd. Uh, There's like 40 guys who could probably do that every year and no one ever does. Yeah. I don't know <laughs> why. I, I guess everyone's scared and saying, no, nah, you know, whatever. But as you see, if you're a good player, you're going to find a place to play. Um, but you know, that's, a, that's like you said, a podcast for another day. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think he definitely is a guy who can have a big impact. You know, Ty Slanina, I think is going to be a really good guy. Another guy that, you know, was coming out of high school, not a high end recruit by any means. He played quarterback at San Antonio Reagan where Trevor Knight and Kellen Mond played, um, moved over to linebacker in college and has been a great fit there. Big body, uh, really thick guy. And football is one of the only things you can say a kid's thick and it not be kind of weird. <laughs> uh, but you know, he, I mean, he's going to be a, uh, he could be a very good linebacker for TCU, and then you put, you know, Johnson right next to him, and either in the four three or you know you put him at that nickel or rover in the four two five, and he could make an impact. Mm-hmm. I'll seed this next one to you. He's not technically a transfer, but sort of. Jace Sternberger, breakout star of the the spring, would you say? You sound you sound like I'm looking at you. You sound like you got some Jace Sternberger takes. I, I, what what do you what do you see as the future of Mr. Sternberger in in the A and M program? Listen, in, in, in Jimbo Fisher's mission to make A and M football great again, because that's exactly what's happening. Let's yes. not let's not mess around. Is the he addition, the new Nick O'Leary, or is he something much shorter? I just I don't know what's going. Like the the Sternberger edition, by all intents, like people who watched him in Oklahoma thought he was great coming out of high school. Were surprised that he got passed over. You know, and, and he left Kansas. You know, I, I don't really blame anybody. Sorry, David Beatty. I, you know, David Beatty's a great guy. Tough place to Probably play. getting fired after the end of this year. Um, but, you know, I don't blame anybody for leaving Kansas. Um, you know, I think it was – I wonder 
if what happened at the A&M spring game wasn't a, like it was a lot of it was a setup for Jay Sternberger to have a great game. You know, they obviously scripted a bunch of the plays and I think they wanted, you know, you wonder, you know, in the back of your mind, did Jimbo purposely go out and say, we want to make Jay Sternberger look really good to show that this is going to be a different kind of A&M offense. He, you know, we're going to play a certain kind of way. It's a good conspiracy theory. It is. Like you know, it. I, you know, I, I'm a very strong, I, I think that's, a, I think, I think there's some, there's some, there's some uh, merit behind that theory there. Uh, but I think Sternberger can come in and play well. You know, the, the beauty of a tight end is that not only doesn't help a, can he help a bad offensive line, but he also gives you a, a, you know, a sneaky passing threat that you've got to account for, especially if you don't have a great quarterback who can sling it around and spread it around a ton. And we don't know if Nick Starkle or Kellen Mond can do that. So it's nice to have that kind of safety blanket to use them. You know, A&M's traditionally had so many good receivers that your tight end isn't going to be one of the top passing options. Now this year, you know, Jimbo likes to have, you know, he he's now created a fullback position, moved a linebacker to fullback. You know, he's, a, you know, brought in a couple tight ends. And so we'll, we'll see what happens. But, you know, I think Sternberger can, just by nature of Jimbo's offense, I think he can be a good player. But I'm very skeptical of saying Jace is going to be this game-changing kind of guy because he had a great spring game and had a great spring because, honestly, I think that was part of the plan was to show that, hey, A&M is going to use the tight end. I've never – the cheers that came out of Kyle Field when a tight end caught the ball, I was just like, what is going on? They love it. They no, love I, it. I have never heard a stadium get – like aroused is the proper word <laughs> to describe Jay Sternberger and his what his effect on A&M like they were when he caught like touchdown passes and it was full arousal 120 There's, carries for the fullback that's what I want to see was, out of I think, I, think, I think at that point Jay Sternberger catching passes was the equivalent <laughs> of beating Texas you know I think you they released the same endorphins so <laughs> I don't I, I'm very as a neutral observer I think he can make a big impact but I am very skeptical to say that he's going to be the end all be all game changer and if he is Great. I'm just gonna hold. I'm gonna tap the brakes on it. It's interesting. I like that. That's the that's the Stevie Wonder can actually see of college football uh, conspiracy theories. I like it. So when you when you cover this sport long enough, you sort of start to understand the language of coaches. Uh, When a compliment is not really a compliment, if a I will leave the coach. Well. No, I'm not going to go there. If you call your quarterback a good singles hitter, that's not a compliment. <laughs> right. But I will leave that I will leave that coach unnamed for the moment. But uh you start to learn. And and I think I expected some of the praise for Jalen Hurd at, at Baylor to be a little bit muted. He's a guy who has not played receiver that much. Very ugly end at Tennessee, quit the team, ends up down at Baylor. He wanted to play receiver, but Tennessee needed him to be a running back because they didn't have running backs. Quits the team, ends up at Baylor, sits out last year. Huge guy, 6'4", 230. Obviously a, a receiver sort of body. But I'm telling you, talking to Baylor's coaches, like they really think he's on the level of Denzel Mims and Chris Platt. They think he's going to be like the third guy that makes them have like one of the best receiving cores in the country. And for Baylor, a team obviously coming off a 1-11 season, to have to be a team coming off a 1-11 year and have any position unit be truly elite, like top 3, top 5 in college football, literally any position unit. That's rare. And I think Baylor has one. I think her just the way that they like him, the team like his teammates really liked him. Uh, they liked sort of his his attitude. Has come off well sitting a year on scout team after being a guy who was like probably the best player on Tennessee's offense for two years. Uh, coming in, coming down here and sitting on scout team and sort of toiling in obscurity for a year. They loved the effort that he gave, and they have seen him in the spring make a huge impact. And I still think he'll end up being their number three receiver. I don't know that they're going to have, you know, Platt or Mims are going to have huge years. They're talents, but I don't think they're going to have a lot of production. But Hurd is going to have a big impact. And I think he's going to be a problem in the red zone. I think all of Baylor's receivers are going to be problems in the red zone. And if Baylor makes a huge jump, I think Hurd is going to be a big part of that. I'm, I am team Baylor might go to a bowl. I think, I think they'll be knocking on that door. Uh, but... What have you seen from Hurd, and how do you expect him to make that transition? You know, I think it's very interesting because, like you said, he, that that ending at Tennessee was ugly. Um, but he, you know, he, you know, for for his credit, he came back, was able to land a spot at a Power Five program. So, you know, he clearly has talent. 
Um, you know, it's interesting that he ended up at Baylor because, you know, Matt Rule was not traditionally a guy who, you know, aired it out a ton. He really is more of an East Coast pro-style kind of guy. Um, you know, but like you said, Baylor could theoretically have a very good receiving core. And the thing is, I am very pro-Charlie Brewer. I think he could end up being a great quarterback in the Big 12. Very possible. And the second, like, I think the giveaway was, when, like you said, you kind of know how to, no, I'm still a pup in the game. You know, not really, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if I have enough skins on the wall to say that I, I know definitively anything in this, in this deal. But whenever I heard Dana Holgerson praise Charlie Brewer on end, Dana knows a thing or two about quarterbacks. You have, a, you got, you got the feeling that this kid can sling it. Mm-hmm. And I think Brewer. I think that's going to be the thing. I don't think it's a stretch to say Baylor could make a bowl game this year. I mean, they were probably one of the best one in eleven teams in, in the greatest college football one in eleven yeah. team in college football history. I mean, they were. <laughs> I mean, their record doesn't doesn't indicate how how much better they are. And granted, I think the off the field progress is obviously going to be the bigger thing. We can't reduce Baylor or any of these coaches to wins and losses because we see what happens. Uh, you know, Art Briles is the prime example of that. Um, I hate that we have to bring up Art Browse in, in Baylor again, but I think it's worth pointing He's going to be a cloud over the program for a long you know, time. It's just reality. Yeah. He's so synonymous with, right. with but I think success. It's, when, we, when we talk about evaluating whether coaches are good or bad, I think we also have to look at how they operate off the field as well because we can't reduce everything to wins and losses. I know that's what makes the money and everything. But all that being – that's an aside. Um, you know, I do think that they can be a, a bowl contender this year. I think – you know, her, you know, Hurd's a terrific athlete. I mean, he was an SEC caliber athlete, and and you know, if he's that kind of size, and with Brewer making the jump that you would think he would make from a freshman year to a sophomore year, I think that there's a lot that could go well for Baylor, and I think that it's not a stretch to all those things that you believe and that you say. I don't think it's hard to believe because of what they have coming back and kind of what they have to work with. Mm-hmm. Well, those are the the big ones that you need to pay attention to. I don't have anything. On the food corner, Ben, as a chicken finger recruit, you got some food takes. Do you? Would you like to leave us with any food takes or any food recommendations in the state of Texas? Oh, that's a good. I'm seating. I'm seating the food corner to you. I don't know. I, people give me a lot of food credit. Like I, 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 the whole chicken finger recruitment thing. It wasn't <laughs> even my idea. I just got them. Oh, thankfully my buddy had the foresight to do it, and I just kind of <laughs> I played along. Um, you know, I'm trying to think. Um, I. I'm starting to get a little more into barbecue, uh, kind of having that little all bit. Right, right. Um, you know, I, I don't think I can do another chicken finger gimmick this summer. It's a shame that that's in the in the years I've been at the DMN, that's the best thing I've done, which is not a not a good <laughs> indictment of, of my my coverage or work. So I've got to get better on that end. Uh, I don't really have any spicy food takes. I think Taco Deli is still much overrated. Um, so for our friends down in Austin, you know, it's 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 a shame. I think the the taco game in Dallas is getting a little better. I think slowly but surely we're kind of making steady improvements. I would like to see a better breakfast taco spread. I think that's uh, something that we can improve on. All right. And I I'm think a Taco Zimas guy. I th- and, and the brunch, I haven't been to Taco Zimas. Where's that at? There's a few locations. Okay, so it's there, a chain. It, well, it's like a it's like a it's like a region, like a like a small local chain. It's okay. good. Their breakfast tacos are the are the thing. It's good. They're good. Right. You know, I think the interesting, you know, I've got a take that I wonder like if we matched up pound for pound, Dallas was such a great brunch city. Like it's such a cultural thing in Dallas. Like brunching is a sport here. And I, you know, for our statewide listeners, I don't know how much you can, you can quantify, you can express that. Cause I mean, it is a huge deal. Um, and I wonder how much of the state has caught up and like brunch is now such a big thing. I wonder if Dallas is still the king of brunch. I feel like it's, I feel like it's slipped. If I, I, if I feel I, like it has too. I, th- I think there's not there is not an iconic brunch place in. Dallas. Like that used to be breadwinners. Like you're like, all right, yeah. where are we getting brunch? Breadwinners, done deal. Breadwinners slipped. Oddfellows slipped. Yeah, and I'm just like, and a lot of the and a lot of the country is caught up to brunch being a thing. And I, you know, you go visit so many. And Dallas has to take pride in being good at something. It can't just be mediocre and <laughs> everything. Um, Cowboys aren't good. The Rangers aren't right. good. Embrace uh, brunch. The sports are trash. I don't even <laughs> want to get started on that. Um, you know, but I think that we. Yeah, I, I, that's the one take. I think that brunch could be better in Dallas. I think we're leaving a lot on the table. I think you know our staple spots have to become better. And like as a city, you got to take pride in something. And like in like every every part of the state has something. Dallas is such a my knock on Dallas is it's such a vanilla city. And it's like having lived in and like going to experience other parts of the state. Like you can sense the culture and the flavor of certain things. And Dallas is just like if I had to pick an ice cream flavor, it's vanilla. <laughs> you know. I think the best thing about uh, I I would describe Dallas is that if somebody dropped you and you'd never been to either city and you went in Dallas or you went in Atlanta, 
it would be indistinguishable from each other. <laughs> the two cities. I think also. So basically, your take is that Dallas is the USC football of brunch cities. That's oh, it's ba- interesting. That's, ba- that's basically your take. A once great kingdom, yeah, brought to its knees by mismanagement. Yeah, I think so. I think I I agree. I'd rather go like if I'm getting brunch, like like I'm going to Houston, going to Breakfast Club, getting chicken and waffles, like going to San Antonio. That's a long like, commute for chicken and waffles. I gotta uh, tell you. Yeah, like if I'm like honestly, I had uh, my girlfriend and I have had this discussion often. The oh, I had French toast in San Antonio. That was the best I've I still have ever had, and I like, like the, the creme brulee th- French toast. The, oh, uh, that's it's the the sugar crystallized on top of the French toast. It's that's good. Max as, is shaking his head. But as I'm someone just as someone who was looking for a Taco Bell or Canes on the way here to record the podcast, all of this is making <laughs> me very hungry. That's good. That's good. Well, that will end today's show on a delicious note. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you to our guest host, Mr. Ben Baby of the Dallas Morning News. You can read his work there. Thanks to Max Thomas or Thompson, Max Thompson. Close enough. Max Thompson, our producer, our fearless producer, hits all the buttons, does all the stuff. He makes it happen. And, of course, thank you to the North Texas Honda dealers. It's their job to be helpful. So that will do it for us on another episode of Republic of Football. See you again soon. Thanks.